Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a pediatrician discusses how sensitive issues are handled between pediatricians and their patients. It's very important to stay open-minded, ask open-ended questions, sit down and make good eye contact when you're talking to the family because that all tells them that you're engaged in the care of their child. A stroke neurologist explains how expertise from Upstate's Comprehensive Stroke Center is extended into rural communities throughout central New York. The, the big uh, piece of uh, telestroke is to provide subspecialty care to poorly served areas and in sparsely populated areas like the North Country, that's the case. And a transplant surgeon provides an overview of what's involved in kidney transplants. All that plus the healing muse coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll talk about the Telestroke program that puts stroke neurology expertise into communities throughout Central New York. Then we'll hear about kidney transplants from the Interim Chief of Transplant Services at Upstate. But first, how to discuss sensitive subjects with your pediatrician. As most children grow and mature, they make regular visits to the pediatrician's office. At some point along the way, various sensitive subjects may arise. Here in the HealthLink on Air studio to talk about how to address sensitive subjects is Upstate Associate Professor of Pediatrics, Dr. Beth Nelson. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Nelson. Thank you for having me back. In terms of the doctor-patient relationship as a pediatrician caring for a newborn baby, who's your relationship with? So it starts really with the parents or the close caregivers, and it can be anybody from aunts, uncles, grandparents, close family friends, but we really focus on who is going to be providing most of the care for the child. So it's whoever's bringing the child to the appointment, probably. Most of the time, yes. All right. And that changes over time, though, right, as the child grows? Sure. So as a, as a child grows, we start to include the child more and more in our interactions, and um, start to include them in um, the discussion about gathering history, doing the physical exam, offering advice, asking questions. And as the child grows older, we start to direct more and more questions towards them. At what point do you stop having the parent or the caregiver in the room with the child? So we always include the parents or the caregivers with the children and the teenagers in, in the room. They are an important part of taking care of the kids. So kids don't grow up in vacuums. They grow up in families, which are in households, which are in communities. So the biggest thing that we can do for to advocate for the health of children is really to involve the parents and the caregivers in their care. So even when you approach, when we have patients who are approaching the adolescent age years, we always want to start with parents in the room. And I also often end with the parents in the room to kind of close the encounter. Okay. So you get a kind of a good idea of the type of relationship that the child has with their parent. Sure. And we can often see it just from walking in the room and not even saying anything to see what the temperature of the room is. Okay. Well, that's good information to know too, right? Mm -hmm. Um, How does a pediatrician go about building trust with a child? Because that's pretty important to have, especially as they get into the teen years. But what do you do to build that from the beginning. Sure, so it starts with the regular checkups, I think. So seeing a same or similar faces whenever they come to the office, having us do the same types of things over and over again, asking the same kinds of questions. So I've been at Upstate um, since 2006, that's when I finished uh, medical school. And um, I have patients that I've taken care of since then because I've been here continuously. So I've just gone through a whole bunch of 13-year-old well child checks. And when I first started taking care of them, it was really getting to know the family and the social situation and the kind of everything that was going on at home. But now it's much easier because I can walk in the room, have more of a social type of visit, have a very casual conversation where I get through everything. Um, do what I need to do, do all of the appropriate things that have to get done in the course of a well-child visit. But it's much um, a much more calm 
casual approach. Because you know them. Yeah, because I... Because they've grown up with you, Because they've grown up with me, yeah. And I've had that opportunity to build rapport. And it can be very difficult to do that if it's the first time you're seeing a family. But it's very important to stay open-minded, ask open-ended questions, sit down and make good eye contact when you're talking to the family, because that all tells them that you're engaged in the care of their child. So uh, let's talk about the 12 or 13 year old. What, what regular checkup? What does that consist of at that age? So, so sure. So a regular checkup of for kids of all ages starts with the rooming process. So getting uh, growth parameters. So weighing, getting a length or a height depending on the age of the child, um, getting vital signs. So blood pressure, pulse, temperature, etc. And then. Um, checking hearing and vision for kids that are um, old enough to be able to cooperate with that. And the nurse typically will ask, or the nurse or the person rooming the patient will typically ask, are there any concerns you need to talk to the doctor about today? And then when we go in, we for while child visits, we have several things that we want to talk about. We want to talk about if there's any current concerns, review any past concerns, um, changes in past in their medical history. We want to make sure that we talk about nutrition. We want to talk about sleep. We want to talk about development and or school performance. We want to um, talk about bodily functions, so peeing and pooping. And for older um, girls, we we talk about menstruation and periods. And then um, we talk about family history, and we also talk about social history. So. In younger kids, the social history stuff is who lives at home, does anybody smoke, who takes care of the child, do they go to daycare. As kids get older, that includes the school history, school performance. But then when you start to hit that preteen and teenage years, then we start to talk more and more about other things in their social situation. So friend groups, image, um, and then we start to get into the more sensitive types of topics, including um, sexual health, drug and alcohol use, um, and mental health issues. So, so that's kind of tied to the maturity level of the individual child. Too. It is. It is. For a developmentally appropriate child, starting to have this conversation, even as early as 11, is, is appropriate because you're setting the stage for what's going to happen when this, when this child turns 13. Because at 13, is usually between 12 and 13, depending, again, on the maturity age of the child. That's when we start to um, have more confidential conversations with the patient. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Upstate pediatrician Beth Nelson uh, about sensitive subjects that may arise during a pediatric visit. Now, you listed a lot of areas that you talk with um, the, the child about nutrition, sleep, school performance, all of those things they could all bring up an issue that's pretty sensitive, right? Absolutely. So this could go in many directions, it sounds like. Right. So if you have a a parent in the room and the child either gives you a nod or a shoulder shrug or doesn't really want to offer any information about it, that's um, one of the reasons why it's really important to have that confidential time alone with the patient to be able to to talk about those things without the parent in the room. They might not be comfortable talking about it with the parent in the room. So you have to read the body language. Absolutely. There's a lot of nonverbal communication that we have to pay attention to. So what are the sorts of sensitive subjects that a pediatrician in this community might encounter and how do you handle them? Yeah. So there's, so there are a number of different things. I think, um, this is common for all pediatricians and these are important things for all of us to address. So reproductive and sexual health. So um, asking if, um, so kind of starting kind of with a softer type of question. So are you interested in boys, girls, or both? Have you been talking to anybody? I try to couch things in terms that they understand. So um, dating or seeing someone is not something that kids really say these days, I've learned. It's are you talking to someone? So asking them, because if I say, are you dating anyone? They say no. no, but if I say you're talking to someone, oh yeah, I'm talking to a couple of girls. Um, and then I ask, have, do you have any questions about the way that your body's changing or developing? Have you had any sexual experiences? And sometimes you actually have to describe um, in detail what those sexual experiences are because they may not understand. Because if you say, 
if you ask someone, have you had sex, they might say no, but they've had oral sex. So you have to get specific because they may not consider, they may consider like penetrative sex as sex. They may not consider oral sex in that category. So you kind of start soft and then, and then move um, kind of closer to the core of the question. Same for drug, alcohol, and tobacco use. So um, I kind of start that questioning with, um, do you have a good group of friends? Do you have a best friend that you can talk to about things that are bothering you? What do you like to do with your friends? Any of your friends smoke cigarettes, vape, um, smoke weed, do drugs? Do you do any of that kind of stuff? So you kind of start in the outer circle and move move closer and closer. Can you get a sense of whether they're being honest with you? I hope they're being honest. I try to take them at their word. Um you know, the parents sometimes will have concerns. Well, I think he's doing drugs with his friends. And then you get the patient alone and you say, you know, it sounds like your mom's really concerned about that. Do you have any comment about that? Do you, are you concerned about this? And they may say one way or the other. And it's, it could be frustrating if you feel like you're not getting more than a shoulder shrug or a grunt or a nod. Um, but hopefully you've developed a good relationship with that parent um, with the parents and with the child over time, that you get the honest questions, that they feel that you are a trustworthy doctor. Do you promise not to tell the parent? I mean, because you're kind of in the middle there. Absolutely. We're, we're very much a go-between when it comes to things like this. So when I have, so after I, I ask all of those other questions about like school performance and everything else, I, I ask the parent to step out of the room. For patients that I've known for a long time, I literally turn to them and say, I'm kicking you out now. <laughs> um, <laughs> and when we train our, our resident pediatricians, I say, you have to use the words that, are, that make you the most comfortable to do that. I say, I'm going to, or I'm going to ask you to step out of the room so I can have some time with your child alone. And I'm going to do the exam. And I usually ask these sensitive type questions while I'm doing the physical exam because then it's like we're not sitting staring at each other and making awkward eye contact from across the room. I often sit next to them on the exam table so they don't have to look straight at me so I can do some physical exam things while I'm sitting next to them, listen to heart and lungs, uh, look in ears, that kind of thing. So that way they don't feel like I'm staring at them and making it really uncomfortable or awkward. Um, so when, when I ask the parents to step out is when I, when I say, is there anything you want to talk about without parent in the room? Um, and if it's something, if it's a patient that I don't know very well, or if it's the first time we're doing this, I say, this is a time for you to talk to me about stuff that you have concerns about that you're really not comfortable talking to your parent about. I said, this is a, I also add that this is a confidential time. There are some instances where I will have to tell your parent. I, I will have to tell your parent if you are actively suicidal, if you are um, actively threatening to kill somebody else because you're putting yourself at risk or you're putting somebody else at risk. I also say if um, we start to talk about things like eating disorders where I'm worried that you are at risk for doing more damage to yourself than I will tell your parent I said but for most of the stuff that we're going to talk about it's just between you and me so what if a child brings up you know that they've been sexually abused not necessarily by the parent Mm -hmm. but by someone right what are you as the pediatrician able to do with that so I try to provide them a safe space in which to talk about it and sometimes they just don't and this is this has definitely happened before where um, they, they say, I, I think something happened or I'm worried that this was, I was touched inappropriately or something like that. I say, okay, well, have you told, I ask if they've told anybody, if they've talked to their parents about it and sometimes yes. And sometimes no, I say, okay, well, I, because this happened to you, I have to tell other people about this, but they're people that I work with, they're people that I trust and people that I know, and they're going to get you help that you need. It's, we're going to have to, you know, do a physical exam, um, and your parent might have to talk to somebody. So I'm going to help you talk to your parent about this because that's, it's important, especially in that, um, particular situation. It's very important to, um, have the parent as a partner in this. The child should not have to go through this alone. And we're very fortunate in Syracuse that we have the McMahon Ryan Child Advocacy Center, and they have a lot of resources to help kids and families that are in this particular situation. What if a child, uh, a female requests birth control? That's easy. (laughs) That's easy? It's very easy, yeah. So in New York State, there's New York State law that actually protects reproductive health rights for minors. So, um, if even if she's as young as 11 or 12 and says comes to me and says I'm thinking about becoming sexually active or 
I want birth control because whatever the reason is, their parent actually doesn't have to know about it. The parent does not have to provide consent for that. So the because it's considered a, a mature topic, that if they are mature enough to be able to ask for it, then um, the parent does not have to provide consent for them. So New York State of Minors considered under the age of 18. Um, so that's easy. So then we just talk about what all the options are. I have a nice little sheet that shows them all of the different options, whether the pill or the patch or an IUD or an implant, whatever it is. And um, I said, I say, you know, the best type of birth control is the one you're actually going to use. And we go from there. And then, but then I also say, have you talked to your parent about this? Would you like help talking to your parent about this? Sometimes they're like, I don't want them to know at all about this. And that's fine too, but I, I do offer to kind of be the go-between when it comes to that. Have you ever encountered um, a child who's not been vaccinated and asks you and says, I want to be vaccinated? That has not happened yet. Um, I'm surprised it hasn't happened yet, um, but it's only a matter of time, especially with the new New York State law on vaccines. Um, I've had it happen with other things. I've had it happen with mental health treatment. Um, my mom doesn't... I. I I'm expressing like the patient is expressing symptoms of depression or anxiety and they want to either start on medications or they want to go to therapy, but their parent is very hesitant to allow them to do that. Or they don't believe in medications. They don't believe in therapy for whatever reason it is. And we, we can work around those things. Yeah. Well, thank you for talking us through all of this. This has been very interesting. Well, thanks for having me. My guest has been upstate pediatrician, Beth Nelson. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, how stroke experts are caring for patients throughout Central New York. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. You may realize that a stroke is a medical emergency and that rapid treatment is important, but what if you're not physically near a comprehensive stroke center when stroke symptoms appear? With me in the HealthLink on Air studio are Liz Kessler, she's a nurse and the stroke outreach coordinator, and Dr. Hesham Masood. He's a stroke neurologist from Upstate's Comprehensive Stroke Center, and he's going to tell us about the telemedicine program. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Masood. Thank you. Now, let's start with uh, by reminding listeners of the primary warning signs of stroke, just to refresh memories. Yeah, so I think um, that acronym is very useful. Um, I'm sure people have heard of it by now, FAST, face, arm, speech, and then time uh, is T, time to call 911. There are variations of that that can include... Um, you know, the letters B and E, so be fast in case, you know, the balance goes out suddenly or you have eye problems. Um, sometimes we'll also add on E and D at the end, so fast ED, so if you have eye deviation or sudden denial of half of your body, which is something called neglect. Uh, these are all, um, you know, some of the major signs of stroke, and uh, those are the acronyms. Now, Upstate's Comprehensive Stroke Center is here in Syracuse. So what happens when someone has stroke symptoms and calls 911 from Utica or Watertown or some outlying community that's hours from here? Well, it really depends on the model of regional care. So uh, here in, in, in central New York, that uh, kind of hospital would initiate, if they were part of our network of uh, telemedicine that we deliver called Telestroke, then they would initiate that consultation with us, uh, establishing a remote video teleconferencing connection. Uh, If they were not part of that, then what they would typically do is uh, that emergency, that local emergency room that's receiving that potential stroke patient would call us uh, or call a regional comprehensive stroke center uh, to discuss the care. How many hospitals are part of the network? So as it stands right now, I think we have 10 centers. Mm -hmm. Um, active. Okay. So are there areas right now 
in, in central New York from the Canadian border down to Pennsylvania that wouldn't have access to specialized stroke care if not for the telemedicine program? Uh, certainly. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, the, the big uh, piece of uh, telestroke is to provide subspecialty care to you know, poorly served areas and uh, in sparsely populated areas like the North Country. Um, that's, that's the case. So typically, a small rural hospital, what are they uh, able to offer in terms of stroke care for someone who comes in there? So um, they're obviously uh, able to initiate emergency care and check on breathing and circulation and make sure the vitals are okay, which is critical. Uh, they'll be able to uh, get a CAT scan, which would exclude um, what a certain type of, of, of a stroke that would warrant a, a different type of care, so a bleed would be managed differently. Uh, and local hospitals are also uh, able to administer the clot-busting drug um, uh, as well. So it's, uh, it's uh, vitally important that patients go to their closest emergency room just to get the start of emergency care because strokes can evolve uh, and you don't want it to evolve while you're en route. And to get just the diagnosis of whether it is a stroke, right? Oh, certainly, certainly. Okay. Well, tell us how the telemedicine program works in actuality. Is there a physician yourself or someone, one of your colleagues, available 24-7? Yeah. So um, in the way that we have our telestroke network set up is that we have our upstate downtown stroke physicians who are covering the inpatient service. Uh, are also covering transfers. And so that includes consultations through our telestroke network. That physician is on call 24 hours a day, um, seven days a week for a period of one week at a time. And so we have providers that will, uh, you know, sign out the service to each other after the rotation. So it's almost like a one week shift if you, if you want to think about it that way. And it, it encompasses the telestroke. Now, how, how is it different from a phone call between the physician? Yeah, so uh, telestroke is uh, different in that it has the benefit of the additional video connection. So you're able uh, remotely as a stroke specialist with obviously those with that expertise to, to lay eyes on the patient and, uh, and assist with the neurologic exam, which can you know, be very helpful uh, in, uh, especially in cases where it's not very clear what is going on. Um, the uh, telestroke physician is also able to review the labs with the ED physician. They're able to uh, look at the images remotely, so you also get expertise and in interpretation of the imaging. And then you get a stroke-directed early management plan uh, from a specialist, and that's essentially what the Telestroke initiative, uh, just in, as far as um, as far as it goes, uh, is hoping to achieve, which is to give you uh, stroke expertise, you know, remotely, uh, and so you don't have to worry about transport in a in a process which we know the uh, the brain dies very quickly. So time is is uh, really of the essence. And c can the patient see you? From the hospital bed? Yeah, it's can... a two-way connection. Um, uh, and Liz will talk to us about um, uh, the, the, the physical rig that we have. But essentially, it's like having a FaceTime uh, with a patient. Um, and that connection is also integrated with the electronic health record and our software that we use to interpret imaging to look at pictures. And so it has those things. And obviously, it has to be protected software. And so there are some... Uh, it's a little bit more complex than that, but that's essentially what it is, is a, you know, FaceTime with the ability to look at pictures and write notes. Okay. Well, Liz, um, what's involved in setting up participation with a, with a rural hospital? Um, so we have a lot of um, great relationships with a lot of our outside hospitals to ensure that we can provide our, you know, neurology services in rural areas so that all of our community can have the similar services and get treatment quickly. Um, so we have a lot of communication with these outside hospitals and we talk with them about what their hopes are for their area, 
Um, we explain to them what we offer, and that's usually, you know, when they're jumping on board and want to join our telemedicine um, services. So when that happens, when they want to be involved, um, there's always the legal work, but we uh, deploy a cart to them, which is set up by our IT folks, and it's through our server. It's all protected, um, so it's HIPAA compliant. Um, so we deploy a cart to them, which is all it is is a monitor. There's no computer to it. It can't do anything else other than telemedicine um, and a very fancy camera. Um, we also make sure that we um, are able to push all of the images. So when they get that CT scan, they push the images so our physicians can see. Um, and then we go up every year, at least once a year, and make sure to do follow-up education with them, train them on the cart, um, on the process of using telemedicine and when to call. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Upstate stroke neurologist, Dr. Hesha Massoud, and stroke outreach coordinator, nurse Liz Kiesler. So with the values of a program like this, where you're providing immediate access to stroke experts and prompt evaluation and accurate diagnosis of stroke and timely clot-busting treatment and streamlined access, all of that, do we have data yet? on the outcomes of stroke in central New York? Is this making a difference in um, people's lives? Yeah, so, you know, I think uh, it, 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 certainly, it certainly is, but uh, to, to kind of start with the, the broader um, view of what Telestroke was hoping to address sort of nationally. So the, the term Telestroke was sort of coined in 1999, so pretty, you know, relatively recently. Um, and it was just in an editorial. And the idea was, was that there are these early experiences with this clot-busting drug where they found that maybe complicate, well, one, rates of delivery were not high. So only three to 5% of patients who qualified were actually getting it. They found that one of the big reasons for that was lack of local stroke expertise at you know, rural centers. Um, they also found that, you know, early on there may have been higher complication rates when the TPA was administered by someone who was not a stroke specialist. So then the idea was, okay, how do we get our stroke specialists there and then harnessing technology to that end? Um, and so there's that benefit is just having, um, you know, patients go to the emergency room where the ED doctor uh, can you know, tap into uh, the resource of a very knowledgeable, obviously, stroke expert. And so patients who are on the fence about TPA in terms of their clinical uh, necessity for it, or they have some complexity to their care, things like that, those are the people on the individual level that are seeing a huge benefit. Telestroke, obviously, is not going to be uh, uh, measured uh, in terms of a huge uh, impact in you know, big academic centers because obviously the expertise uh, are, are uh, local. Um, there are different models of telestroke, um, and the most common model is the one that we have, which is the, the hub and spoke model. So you have these tiny little regional centers, which are community hospitals, that may or may not have a limited stroke designation. And then you have your regional academic comprehensive stroke center. That's what most uh, places are like. And that's, you know, with our group covering essentially everybody remotely. Another model that you actually do see some of the hospitals in Syracuse have um, to, to, to a very limited degree um, and, and other places in the country is a distributed model where it is a private uh, physician group uh, that is not necessarily located in the state that will, pr will provide this remote uh, stroke expertise. And so you sort of uh, pay a subscription fee when you have that model, the quality improvement uh, is usually, or quality um, measurement and, and, uh, and making sure that target times and you know, things are, are progressing as one should when you're dealing with stroke therapies is typically on the side of the local hospital. In the hub and spoke model, it's the academic hospital that sort of takes that under their broader quality improvement. So there, there are little differences uh, there, but you sort of see that mixed model in lots of places in the country. How, how often do, is there a patient from the outlying area that is transferred into upstate with a stroke? Is yeah. that? So um, we have some good numbers I can refer to. So, um, so for instance, for all of 2018, we had 
maybe 46 transfers out of a total of 72 consultations, mm -hmm. with 20% of all the patients getting uh, TPA. Um, year to date, uh, we, we, it looks like we're gonna surpass that number. Um, total right now, we have up to 69 uh, total patients, transferring 45 of them, and already our TPA rate is, is uh, close to 30%. Um, one other thing I should mention about uh, Telestroke that has a huge advantage to the patient is the rapid uh, triage uh, to, the, to, the, to the center that can do clot retrieval. So a patient who has a stroke of, uh, of a certain variety that's, uh, you know, a clot that's manifesting uh, with a large clinical deficit will need more than just the clot-busting drug. And so obviously that surgeon is not, uh, or interventionalist, is not uh, present at the local hospital, at, uh, or we don't have remote expertise uh, yet but uh, that person needs to come, and so the telestroke certainly facilitates that. And you know in advance that that person is en route and is gonna need yeah. your service. And we know that in, in stroke care, pre-notification has an incredible impact on our delivery times for, for care. Well, looking ahead, do you foresee ways of doing even more in terms of stroke care with telemedicine? Yeah, I think one of the big things that we're figuring out now um, is how to uh, standardize the model of telestroke uh, and standardize the credentialing process, uh, the reimbursement process. Some of these things are obstacles or the payment models and how things are reimbursed. And I think uh, in the next uh, you know, uh, period of time, I think we're gonna see that get sort of hashed out. Um, future directions are also gonna be, you know, if we can give the clot-busting medication remotely through this consultation, uh, then maybe we can try to do some more advanced stuff remotely. Um, and that's just a matter of the technology catching up in terms of devices that maybe can be controlled remotely so that we can do the clot retrieval uh, also uh, remotely. Um, so I think those are uh, some, some exciting uh, things to look forward to. Neat. Well, thank you both very much for being here and explaining this. My guests have been Upstate Stroke Neurologist Dr. Hesham Masood and Stroke Outreach Coordinator Nurse Liz Kiesler. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, what you need to know about kidney transplants. Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Some 37 million people in the United States have chronic kidney disease, and for those with end-stage renal disease, the only two treatment options are dialysis or kidney transplantation. Today in the HealthLink on Air studio, we have with us Dr. Mark Loftavi. He's a professor of surgery and the interim chief of transplant services at Upstate University Hospital, where kidney and pancreas transplants are done. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Loftavi. Thank you for having me. Now, there was a recent study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association that said there's 93,000 Americans on the waiting list for a kidney transplant and that 3,500 donated kidneys are discarded every year. So what's going on with discarding organs when there's such a shortage? Absolutely. There is a, a big shortage for organ, and every year, uh, 2,700 people die in this country waiting for an organ transplant. Uh, we try to take the best organs for transplant, but sure. they are most of the time not available. Now, so, doesn't the transplant have to match the recipient? No, you know, this matching concept that we used to uh, put a lot of money on it uh, has paled. And now, with the new technique and with the new uh, treatment that we have, matching is not really an important issue in transplant. Oh. So the major uh, um, 
cause of discard is because this organ are damaged or high risk for transplant. Um, normally, a lot of these patients that die, they have some disease, and that disease impacted on their kidneys or their liver or their heart or their lungs. Um, there are some strategies that we can take some time to use this kind of high risk, what we call them, for transplant. And we do it here at Upstate, uh, such as using, for example, very young donors. The youngest we did was two months old here. The kidney are extremely small, but they grow. And actually, the patient who received it about two months ago, now uh, she has the best um, kidney function. Also, we can use dual transplant from older patients. So let's say if in a healthy person you have 100% function, but I take one kidney, so indeed I am giving you 50% of that healthy mass. Now, if I have a kidney that not optimal, but has 60% uh, function, and I split it, then you get 30%. But if I use both kidneys in you, then you get 60% of kidney mass. Mm. That indeed better than a single kidney. We have a good data here shows at uh, one year and five years and even seven years graph survival of this kind of kidney that we use with our comparable to the uh, regular kidney we use. Interesting. So in ideal circumstances, if you could pick and choose like the best kidney for someone who needs a kidney transplant, it would come from a young donor, um, someone who has no disease, right? It would be a healthy kidney. The best kidneys are the living donor. So because that person we check and they are completely healthy, have no disease, and this kidney won't stay in the ice for a long time. So we do it simultaneously at the same time. We take the kidney and within half an hour that kidney is inside the recipient. I always compare it to a brand new car and used car. So if you um, have a living donors, it's like you have a brand new car. And the deceased donors, it's like used car. So the new car we expect to work better and longer and compared to the used cars. Um, also, the immunosuppression that we use in the living donor is much less because, as, as I said, there is no cold ischemia time that make the kidney for higher risk for rejection. So if you take from a living donor, the kidney doesn't get put, as they say, on ice right. or, or preserved to, to take it to wherever. You're going from one operating room to the one next door. That's correct, and sometimes... Uh, we bring organs from far away. Uh, last week I brought a kidney from Seattle uh, and that sometimes stay in the preservation solution inside the ice uh, for 24, 30, sometimes in 40 hours. So uh, the best outcome is when the kidney is less than 24 hours. But when we go higher than 24 hours, um, the clock is ticking faster. So uh, the earlier we can use those organs, the better. Are there reasons for a kidney to be discarded? That it, is there a, kidney, a deceased donor kidney that could not be used? Yes. As I said, before we take the organ out of the body, we are not sure if this organ is the best. So we look to the biopsy, for example. We now put them on a pump. We evaluate the kidney uh, more diligently before we use them. And uh, some of the kidney we brought here, we did not use. But uh, we are an aggressive center at Upstate. Uh, we're trying to bring any organs and look at it carefully. And we gather these skills that we can make this high-risk organ work and work very well. Uh, the kidney that was uh, brought last week uh, from Seattle, working perfectly. And patient going home today, uh, he, this actually, this patient was refused by other centers because he was considered also to be a high risk. 
but I think our team has gathered a lot of knowledge in the immunology and in the transplant uh, surgery. And, you know, it's a, it's a team effort that we all have to put. I believe if you optimize other factors, you may be able to use this kind of organs. But these organs don't have a lot of margin of error. Now, if you get 20 years old, good kidney, I would say it as a joke, you can step on them and they're still working. But these kind of high-risk organs, they don't have that ability to stand a lot of hits. So uh, a little bit cold, a little bit warm, uh, long surgery, all these things, they may not work. But if you optimize other factors and you only have one factor that it is the organ high risk, in most of the case, you may make it well. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Upstate transplant surgeon, Dr. Mark Laftavi. So let's compare, because people with chronic kidney disease, if they're in, in stage, um, the treatment options, dialysis versus kidney transplant. And dialysis, is that a, a daily obligation for some patients? Mostly three times a week. Okay. But just to uh, say that, you know, the kidney are the filter of the body, and we, uh, due to metabolism, we accumulate toxin in our body. And this toxin need to be uh, removed by, we, we urinate those toxin. So when you don't have that filter that works 24-7, this toxin will accumulate. Even when you go to dialysis, we remove a big portion of it, but when the machine stops, they start to accumulate again. And the life on dialysis is uh, not an uh, agreeable life. The quality is very low, as well as longevity of that life would not be too long. If you are diabetic and you have kidney failure on dialysis, there is 19.7% mortality rate per year. So people may not make it, a lot of them may not make it five or six years. Kidney transplant, in contrary, offer a much better quality of life as well as longer life. The uh, cardiovascular event com uh, comparing transplant to dialysis is enormously better. And mortality rate is much better. So uh, certainly kidney transplant is much superior in regard to survival and the quality of life compared to dialysis because these people also bonded to the dialysis machine. They cannot travel uh, that day of, uh, they lose whole day, they lose the whole day for dialysis and uh, when they get out of the machine they are tired, some of them they have low blood pressure, uh, no appetite and if they want to go see their children or their family in Florida, they have to manage with the dialysis center down there. And that period, maybe there is no ability to go get dialyzed there. So there's a lot of hassles. In contrary, when you have a kidney transplant, you put your pills in your pocket, you can travel around the world with no need to uh, be bonded to anything whatsoever. Um, those uh, and many of these uh, damages caused by uremia, which is, exists during dialysis that impact on your nerves, on your bones, on your bowel, everywhere, will be completely removed. You will have a normal life and the kidney mostly work like a normal person. So the idea of a transplant becomes appealing. To, to someone who can have the surgery. Now, the surger, surgical techniques have changed, too. Are, are the transplants done differently today than they were in years past? Absolutely. We have gained a lot of experience, of course. You know, in the early days, uh, there was not a lot of uh, experience. Um, I have done more than 1,500 kidney transplants in my life. And every day I learn something. So the more we get experience, the better we perform. Um, sometimes you have you don't have a regular normal person. The vessels are very hard. They have severe arteriosclerosis. Sometimes it's actually you need a drill to make a hole there. So uh, those are very um, high risk patient for complications 
But there are ways, technique that we can use. We can uh, do a lot of different way to make it happen. So a person who needs a kidney transplant, um, ideally or hopefully, would find someone who would be a living donor. That's a healthy person that w- that has a, a kidney that would be able to be donated to them, right? Absolutely. Just to uh, say that um, if you are healthy and you donate one of your kidney, uh, there should no more damage to your general health. Uh, people who were born with one kidney, they do very well and live a normal life. When we checked on donors that donated kidney 30, 40 years ago, they actually they do better than the general population. Why? Because we don't check the whole general population for health. Therefore, uh, if I am healthy and uh, we, we actually do a very extensive test of these donors and we can calculate the risk actually uh, for their, uh, the risk for graft loss or kidney uh, function. And we can tell you based on your age and your, uh, any condition you have, what is your risk to develop kidney failure in 10 years or 15 years or 20 years? Uh, therefore, there should nobody to hesitate to save a life of their beloved person. Just some people fear that maybe by donating one of my kidney, I will go to kidney failure too, which is not true. And second, just some people don't understand uh, who going to pay for all their surgery and any complication of that uh, donation is the recipient insurance. The insurance insurance will cover all the cost for the donor surgery and any complication that even three, four, five years later develop because of the donation. So the recipient's insurance covers the donor's right. health-related costs. Right. So the donor would not have anything out of pocket regarding that uh, procedure or the treatment if he develop any problem or complication after donation. But if a living donor is not available for someone in need of a kidney, deceased donors, I mean, that's still happening. Yes, but keep in mind that uh, we don't have control of how many deceased donors we have next year or in six months. And people may wait for three, five, six, sometimes 10 years. A, we don't know in 10 years or five years what, what their health will be. They may be actually too sick to be transplanted. This is one. And then uh, certainly the more you stay on dialysis, there is more damage to your body. The statistic shows that if you are only six months on dialysis compared to those who have been more than two years on dialysis, the outcome of kidney transplant was much better on those who have a shorter dialysis time compared to those who have a longer dialysis time. And that's because dialysis and kidney failure will damage their body regardless. Every day there is a damage. And the earliest they can get transplanted, the better. Much, much better. Interesting. Well, thank you so much for this information. My guest has been Upstate Transplant Surgeon Dr. Mark Loftavi. He's the Chief of Transplant Services here at Upstate University Hospital. And the phone number for Upstate Transplant Services is 315-464-5413 for more information about uh, donor, living donor transplants. And we will also have a link to that on the healthlinkonair.org website. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. For those of us who wonder about the professional life of a nurse, Emily Weston, an ICU nurse and a writer, gives us a gritty, funny, and tender glimpse in her story, The Hero. Here is just an excerpt. The Hero, Emily Weston. David is 38 years old. He has been a nurse long enough that almost nothing makes him gag anymore, 
but not long enough that he is annoyed if he misses lunch because of a cardiac arrest. In his mind, full of logic and order and straight lines, this is a not very precise measurement, but he understands that if he reaches the point where he's doing CPR and wishing the patient could have waited until after he ate, then he's been a nurse for a very long time. On an average day, doing charge on A6, David answers 32 phone calls, starts seven IVs, and corrects four mistakes made by new nurses. He hangs eight new bags of IV fluid, questions 15 new MD orders, discharges four patients, and admits five new ones. He helps eight people to the bathroom, cleans up six dirty beds, and helps other nurses and techs lift or reposition a total of one ton of human flesh. He clocks between three and seven miles on his Fitbit. When he gets home at night, he lays on the couch and stares at the ceiling. Some days, A6 is more work than the Air Force. He likes it, though. Likes that he knows the answers. He can assist and correct. Likes the way illness and disability don't phase him anymore because there's something he can do. And he likes the way he moves. In a place where walking down the hall is a feat and so many are hampered by stiff knees, disease, and extra weight, he walks easily for hours, his body still lean and strong from years in the service, a lodestone of order and sanity in his cluttered and chaotic environment. been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, Pediatric Cancer Survivorship. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.